In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you were to think about what brings you the most joy in life, chances are it's another person. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with a friend, a sibling, a parent, a spouse, a child. Relationships are the things that we most cherish in life. And while they can and are the source of much pain in our lives, they're also the source of much joy. Relationships are gifts that have been given to us. They're gifts of another, gifts of one another. And the Bible has a lot to say about how we relate to one another in all the various relationships in which we exist. We're going to take time this fall to consider key relationships and relationship states that God has given us. But we want to consider these relationships and these relationship states as gifts, gifts that God has given us. The more valuable the gift, the greater the responsibility that comes with cherishing those gifts and taking good care of that gift. That's certainly the case when it comes to the relationships that God has given us. And the Bible gives us lots of direction in these various relationships that we have. This morning, I want to start with singleness. Why should we spend time, spend a whole sermon talking about singleness? Well, Scripture talks about this. Scripture actually has a lot to say about being single. But also, everyone experiences singleness at some point. This is how we begin our lives. This is how we, even if you go on to be married, this is how you spend the first chunk of your life. And even if you're married, you'll probably, unless you and your spouse die at the same time, you'll probably have a season when you will be single once again. It's not something that we like to think about, but it's true. And the Bible actually has a lot to say even about this state. There's a singer-songwriter, Jason Isbell, who has a song that painfully explores this truth. There's a line that, I'm not going to sing it for you, but it said, so he's singing about his spouse, his wife. It's knowing that this can't go on forever. Likely one of us will have to spend some days alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together, but one day I'll be gone, or one day you'll be gone. That's sad, isn't it? We don't like to think about that, but it's true. And the Bible talks about singleness. But also there's another reason I think particularly we need to consider singleness now. Singleness is a reality for more and more people both inside and outside the church. There's a number of reasons for this happening that um, we could explore. But the fact is there's a sea change that's happening in our country. So for example in 1960, 72% of adults were married. In 2018, 45% of adults were married. That's a massive shift in less than a generation. Now, many people, for one reason or another, are are intentionally choosing a life of singleness, but of course, many people aren't. They find themselves wanting to be married, but unable to be married for, again, various reasons. Their singleness is not a choice, but it's a frustrating reality. And again, Scripture speaks into this reality, and I think speaks into our particular cultural moment. So as we think about singleness. I want us to look at the gift of singleness, the challenge of singleness, and then the opportunity of singleness. So the gift of singleness. What does the Bible say exactly about singleness? Well, we read this long passage from 1 Corinthians 7, and the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, addresses this topic head on. 
verses 6 through 8. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. So, Paul is saying here, speaking from my pastoral wisdom into this situation, from my own experience, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one kind and one another. To the unmarried and widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. To Paul, single. And in this chapter, as we'll see, he starts to highlight the relative advantages and opportunities for singleness. We'll get to that. But Paul has just addressed a question that's been put to him by the church. So what's happening in Corinthians, he's responding to pastoral questions, writing, speaking directly to them, and he's just addressed a question put about marriage. And he tells married couples about their mutual obligation. Husband and wife have to one another sexually. But then he pivots. He starts to highlight the goodness of singleness. And he refers to it as a gift. Singleness as a gift from God. Now, marriage is a good gift. We're going to consider that in a couple of weeks. But so is singleness. These are to be considered as God's gifts. Now, in the Greco-Roman society of Paul's day, there was tremendous pressure, both economic and cultural pressure, to get married and to stay married. This is particularly the case for women. Even if you're widowed or divorced, there's lots of pressure to get remarried as soon as possible. Even in the Jewish culture, for a rabbi like Paul, marriage would have been the norm. So for Paul to highlight the goodness and the gift of singleness, it actually runs counter to both to the broader culture of his day, but also to what would have been the normative in the Jewish tradition. He's putting forward both marriage and singleness as good gifts, as good states. For Paul, there are two valid and good ways to serve the Lord as a single person, or as a married couple. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he promotes singleness. Singleness in the service of God. Now, the church, we need to understand this. The church is not just a place for married people. The church is not just a place for married people with children. So often churches can tend to start to cater towards that demographic. Often in the church, it can just sort of be assumed that marriage is the goal for everyone along with at least, you know, a couple of kids, maybe more. And if you don't fall into that category, most people are going to be nice, but the assumption is, you know, maybe there's something kind of wrong here. But Paul challenges that sort of thinking, that sort of mentality. Paul calls the church to uphold the goodness of singleness as a gift. And it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians, gifts, gifts are meant for the good of others. Gifts are meant for the common good of the church. And so to see marriage as a gift for the common good of the church, absolutely, but also to see singleness as a gift given to the church for the good of others. So singleness is a gift. But what is this gift exactly? How do we think about this gift? Now, if singleness is a gift, it's often a gift that no one wants. Many who are single against their wishes, understandably, will find it hard to think of singleness as a gift. It feels more like a burden. It's often been taught or assumed, even particularly in Christian circles, that singleness is some sort of superpower. Like the gift of singleness is some sort of very extraordinary gift that probably just only a few people have. But we need to be careful with this sort of thinking. We need to be careful when we equate gifts with desires or circumstances. Now, imagine someone who is unhappily married. Should that unhappily married person conclude you know what? I don't really feel like being married. Right now, I do not feel like I have the gift of marriage. 
Should that person then be like, you know what, this isn't for me. Let's, let's find something completely. God must have something else for me right now. This, I don't like this gift. If this is the gift, I don't want it. I don't feel like I have this gift. That's not how gifts actually work in the Bible. Sometimes our desires and our passions and our feelings align with the gift that we have. But often not. The gift does not always equate desire. You may have a particular gift, for example, of hospitality. But it doesn't always mean you feel like showing hospitality. But it doesn't mean, that doesn't mean your feeling of not wanting to show hospitality doesn't mean you don't have the gift of hospitality. You see what I'm saying? We can't always equate gifts with desire. The reality is, is that if you are a Christian and you are single, you have been given in this moment the gift of singleness. Now, sure, maybe it's just for a season. Maybe it is for long term. But you should understand this particular state as God's gift. God is a good father. He gives good gifts to his children. It may be a mysterious gift. It may be confusing to you, even frustrating to you. But part of the call of discipleship in that particular state is to trust that God knows what he's doing. And he has given you what you need in this moment, in this season, to be faithful to him. Paul wants us to see that our relationship states, whether we're married or unmarried, they are gifts. Sometimes they're gifts that we fully enjoy and fully embrace, but often they're gifts that we might struggle with, but they're gifts nonetheless. And each state has certain challenges and has certain advantages. So let's look at those now. Let's consider the challenge of singleness. There's lots of challenges of singleness. I want to consider just a couple, because to be a Christian and to be single, particularly in our cultural setting, is uniquely challenging. And of course, one of the big challenges around this is sexuality. We need to point out something important. Christian singleness, from the Bible's point of view, doesn't just mean being unmarried, but it means being committed to fidelity, being committed to celibacy. Paul has just upheld the good gift of sex and marriage. He is for sex. We will get to that. But marriage, in marriage between a man and a woman is the context for a sexual relationship. The Bible's very clear on this point. But in the broader culture, of course, in which we live, singleness represents an opportunity to play the field, to be sexually active, but free of the commitment of marriage. In this view, singleness is thought to kind of be the best of both worlds. You have sexual freedom without being locked down. But Christian singleness means abstaining from sexual activity and remaining unmarried. This is a challenge. Now, of course, Paul does go on in 1 Corinthians 7 to say it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul is saying that if marriage is available, then yes, go for it. Don't unnecessarily delay marriage. Marriage is the place for sexual intimacy. Paul is very practical in this matter. But marriage isn't always an option, as much as a single man or a single woman might want it to be. The call to fidelity, the call to celibacy, a word that we've kind of... Uh, have dark associations with, when actually the Bible and the Christian tradition has beautiful associations with this. It's a beautiful thing. As hard as it is, this call remains, and it's part of the challenge for many when it comes to singleness. Most of us, singles or not, will experience our sexuality in different but powerful ways. Celibacy to many just seems absurd and impossible. You know, isn't singleness understood this way, sort of a denial of sexuality? But actually, Christians have understood the power of sexuality as a pointer to a divine longing. 
There's a sense in which our sexual desires, whether you're married or not, celibate or not, are never met because sexual desire is always pointing to something greater. It's pointing to divine. They're only met in the Lord. There's a writer who puts it this way. When we are, where, uh, whether we, we are uh, married or single in this life, sexual desires are inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, a kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfillment and eternal blessing and urge us to go there, to that place of eternal blessing and fulfillment. Strange and as countercultural as it may seem, our sexual feelings are meant to point us towards the greatest love that there is, a love that is available to everyone, single or married, God's love in Christ. You can live a complete and productive human life without sex. Our culture tells us you can't, but the Bible tells us you can. Now, whether that's for a season in life or long term, you can be a complete, productive, fruitful human being serving the Lord. And of course, the prime example of this is Jesus, our Lord. No one was more human than Jesus. No one was more faithful than Jesus. But there's another challenge Christian singles face, and it's actually a challenge that married couples face too, but Paul addresses it to both in 1 Corinthians 7, and that is contentment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in the churches. Each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. So in whatever condition each has called, let him remain. Now Paul is responding to some very particular pastoral issues that are happening in this church, in this context. There's a present distress that's looming. And so that's shaping and directing how he's speaking into this particular situation. But I think that there is a principle that we can pull out of this that Paul is urging whatever state you're in, aim for contentment. He wants the church to be free, he says, from anxiety free from unnecessary cares. So the principle is practicing contentment, whether you're married or unmarried. Paul does seem to be saying to the church in this moment, stop killing yourselves with anxiety over these questions, because in light of eternity, you need some perspective. Paul says again, look, if there's an opportunity for you to marry, absolutely go for it. But he also says you're also free to remain single. Aim for contentment. This is a message for all of us. If you're single, trust God's providence that your singleness is not a mistake, but it's a gift. Now, that doesn't mean some fatal resignation to to singleness for the rest of your life. You can practice contentment and still long and pray and pursue other options. Absolutely. An example of this, if you hate your job, well, you still need to practice contentment as a Christian in that job. You need to see that job as a gift. You get to earn a living. You get to have opportunities to interact with coworkers. It might not be everything that you wanted it to be. It might be incredibly frustrating. But in God's working of things, in God's providence, in this moment, you're to see that job as a gift. That doesn't preclude you while you're trying to practice contentment. That doesn't preclude you from, you know, getting on monster.com or indeed.com and pursuing other opportunities or even actively pursuing another job. Same for those I think you're involuntary single. There's a way to practice contentment, to receive the state as a gift, but also to let your longings be known with the Lord and to pursue something different with no guarantees, of course. Singles will face challenges, and the scripture speaks to those challenges. But I want to end with the opportunity 
of singleness. Because this seems to be one of the notes that Paul is hitting in 1 Corinthians 7. And again, I think this would have been countercultural in Paul's moment to be talking so positively in this way about singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is highlighting the advantages, as he sees it from his perspective, that singles have over those who are married. Marriage, he's saying, uh, marriage is difficult. Marriage makes life more complex. This is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, look, the married man, he's worried about worldly things, how to please his wife, and you can imagine him going on about this, that, and the other. His interests are, are always divided. And he says, by the way, it's the same for the married woman. She has the same set of concerns, concerned about worldly things. Now, Paul here is not saying, you know, that this is somehow ungodly, that they're concerned about worldly things. This is just a reality. There's lots of business to take care of in a household. There are lots of tricky relationship things to negotiate between husband and wife that are just part of the deal. It's a complex relationship. Now, Paul is for marriage, but he's realistic. Marriage, he's saying, look, it has its own set of challenges, its own set of troubles. And he says, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. You can imagine Paul as a pastor. Paul knows real people. He knows real married people. Like, he, he knows how this works. Yes, marriage is a good thing, but marriage also is a hard thing. And he's speaking to that. Many people think marriage will solve all of their problems. Talk to someone who's been married more than five weeks, and they will probably tell you differently. <laughs> because there's a whole new set of problems that exist. And back to that principle of contentment, many married people will find themselves in a place of extreme discontentment in their marriage because of all of these worldly cares that they're facing. Marriage often means, it actually always means, giving up something of your own sense of vocation, desires, calling, pursuits, and interests for the sake of the marriage, for the sake of the family. Children make things even more complex. You're divided even more. There's more and more worldly concerns to care about. Again, these are good things, but Paul is just saying this is the reality of it. It's a relationship that is inherently consumed with worldly cares. So you need to think about that, Paul's saying. It's not easy. Paul contrasts singleness with marriage in order to highlight, actually, the positive aspects of singleness. And for Paul's money, singleness has some clear advantages. The gift of singleness can be leveraged to serve the Lord. For him, that is the advantage. Again, the unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. This is kind of an idealistic way, that he, a picture he's painting, but this is how he sees the opportunity of singleness. The unmarried man can be anxious about things of the Lord. Singleness allowed Paul to be nimble. He could pick up and go. He could be single-minded in a way that maximized the ministry he had to spread the gospel. He could travel easily, travel the Mediterranean for the sake of the gospel. Paul sees singleness as providing an opportunity for serving the Lord. And there's a way in which you can read this in which he places it slightly above marriage. Again, even though Paul is very much for marriage. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, again, okay to get married, and he who refrains from marriage does even better. If a wife's husband dies, Paul says, look, she's free to marry in the Lord, marry another believer, perfectly okay. But then Paul says, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. Again, this isn't a command from the Lord that Paul's given. He's speaking from his own experience. He's speaking very pastorally and practically. But he says, too, we didn't read this verse. He says, I, too, have the Spirit of God. Um, there, the last verse in chapter 7. 
So he has some wisdom for us to hear. There's an opportunity in singleness. There's an opportunity also for all of us, single or not. There's an opportunity for the church. The church needs the gifts of singles. Not just what they do, but the church needs them, their person, as a gift. Singles should never be made to feel as somehow second-class citizens of the church. Because singleness is a good gift. Again, whether that singleness is chosen or not, short-term or long-term. And we need to acknowledge singleness for what it is, a good gift. We should be careful with assuming that everyone will be married. You know, parents, the way you talk to your kids growing up, maybe it's better to say, look, if the Lord calls you to marriage. And then also talk about, you know, the Lord may call you for a long season, maybe for your whole life, to be single. This is a possibility. This is an option. It may not be what you want for them, but you need to recognize that this could be a gift that God has for them. Church members, when we're speaking to someone who is single and wants to be married, we need to be careful how we talk to them. We need to avoid saying things like, oh, I know the Lord will bring someone just perfect into your life at just the right time. Or, oh, a you know, pretty girl like you, you're, you're, you're going to find someone. Or a you know, guy who's got it together like you, you're, you know, Miss Perfect's going to come around. We need to be careful saying things like that because you don't know that. You don't know how God's providence is going to work out. It's much better if someone is sharing with you their burden, their desire, for example, to be married, that you enter into that with them as a prayer. You acknowledge the difficulty of that, but you be for them as a brother or a sister. See, a healthy church will encourage both married couples with all the troubles that marriage has and singles with all of the burdens that singles have to carry. Most importantly, we need to understand that the church is the family of God. You know, one of the myths of singleness is that it means no family. Now, that might be true out in the broader culture, but it's not true in the church because the church is the true family of God. The true family is found in and through the church. These are our brothers and sisters, our spiritual mothers and fathers in the church. In the gospel lesson, Jesus is talking to his disciples who, have, who realize the cost of following him. They realize, and they indeed have given up much to follow Jesus. They've forsaken key relationships, which raises a whole other set of questions that we can maybe consider another time. But the point is, following Jesus may cause sacrificing otherwise really, really good things in this world. But Jesus also says something very interesting. He says to Peter, who's like, look, Lord, we've left all of this to follow you. And Jesus says to him, no one who has left brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, whatever it is, for my sake, it, it will be made up a hundredfold in this age now. Now, how is that the case? I think we have to see what Jesus is doing in his ministry because he is creating a new community, a new family around himself. There's this wonderful episode in Mark chapter 3 when someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, your mom and your dad and your, your brothers are looking for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, who is my mother, my brother, my father and sisters? You are. This community he is gathering around himself. Now, Jesus loved his mom. He loved his brothers, absolutely. But the point is that Jesus is creating a new family around himself. So whether you're married or whether you're single, you have a true and ultimate family, and that is the church. Following Jesus always comes with a cost, always comes with a call to sacrifice, always comes with a call of renunciation. We don't like to hear that. 
Because we think we should have absolutely everything that we want, and if we can throw Jesus on top of it, fantastic. But the minute this starts to actually have a real-world cost, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know if this Christianity thing is for me. But Jesus is very clear that following him will often require, always require you to give up and renounce something that is good for his sake. Might be for a season, it might be for a lifetime. The church is a family created not by blood, but by water, the water of baptism. And in the church, water is thicker than blood. So as we think about the opportunity for the church as a whole, what might this look like? For those of us who are married, and those of us who are married with children also, we should regularly host and welcome singles into our lives, invite them into our homes, into the messiness of our homes, the chaos of our homes. Speaking as someone who has three kids under five. We should invite them into the lives of our children. Not, this is key, not because they are a project, but because they are family. We tend to group ourselves naturally and understandably according to life stages and status. Um, this This is a fine and good thing. But there's something wonderfully when we mix that up when we mix up the generations, when we mix up those from different backgrounds and experiences, there's something wonderfully rich about that. And of course, this should be turned around too. Singles can always welcome the married and married with children into their lives and homes because we are family. There's a wonderful opportunity for us to see the church as the true family of God in which our our families are not siloed off in these little private entities separated from everyone else, but we have these sort of porous borders in our homes where we welcome others in. Singleness is a gift, and you can live a fully human life as a single person. You can live a fruitful Christian life as a single person, because the one who lived human life perfectly was himself single, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.